Okay, good evening everyone. We are now studying Parshas Teruma. And uh, what we're going to share with you is one of the sikhs from the Lubavitch Rebbe from many years ago. And also some other added points that will uh, fill in some gaps over here. And we now begin the construction of the Mishkan. And somebody at Shalashudist asked a question. And uh, this has is relevant to that question and other questions like this. So let's just begin uh, the first uh, few psukim of the parsha, where it says, "Daber al Yisrael, speak to the Jewish people, v'yikhuli truma, and take for me truma. May ace call each from each man, Asher yidven libo, who has a philanthropic heart." Tikhu es trumasi, take my truma. And the Pasuk goes on. Vizos ha truma sher tikhu meitom. And these are the, this is the truma that you will take from them. And they list through the list. And one of the things on the list is atse shitim acacia wood. So the question that troubles all the commentaries is where did in the desert, they get acacia wood. So before I bring Rashi, I want to give you the Ibn Ezra, the Dasikanim, and the Abarbanel's understanding. And there's a reason why I'm doing it in this way. And they basically say the same thing. The Ibn Ezra, if you look in the English, right about in the middle in the English, after the dot, 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 he says, we suggest that there was a forest of acacia trees next to Mount Sinai. Hmm. When Israel came to Sinai, Moses told them that they would be spending a long time there. I've already explained, says the Ibn Ezra, that there was no cloud over them at this time. Each of them then made a booth. The princes made court-like structures, each one in accordance with his status. They cut the entire forest down, for they were a large nation. They made booths. Moses did not speak to them regarding the tabernacle until the day after atonement. So says to Ibn Ezra, where did they have wood from? There were forests near Sinai. In the desert. Near the desert. There were forests there. Okay. Says the Das Sikanim from the Bali Tosvas. Same thing. There were some forests in the desert from which the Israelites were able to cut boards, which they called shitim. Now that word shitim is very interesting because we read in the book of Yoshua, it says Yoshua sent out spies from shitim. And the Navi Yeshaya also discusses that. So we have a second commentary that says there were some forests. And the Abarbanel, where I don't have the English there, after giving a number of opinions, he says, The best interpretation is, There would be many salesmen, traveling salesmen, who would go through the desert, would sell all kinds of merchandise. And this answers another question. This is what I was asked in Shalashudas. Where did the Jews have oil for the menorah in the desert? 
oil comes from olives that don't grow in the desert. So umisham kanu Hashem and lamaor vahap samim v'shem and lamish v'latars. All these things they didn't have in the desert: the the oil for the for the menorah, the besamim for the ketores. Okay, and therefore they also bought wood. So they also bought atzei shitim. All very pragmatic answers, right? So now that we have all those answers, now we will go to Rashi. Okay, Rashi says, source number five. Rashi asks, Where did they have it in the Midbar? Perish Rabbi Tanchuma. Rabbi Tanchuma, who wrote the Midrash Tanchuma, says, Yaakov Avinu Tzofa Baruach HaKodesh. Yaakov Avinu saw with his divine uh, prophecy, Shasidim Yisrael Livnois Mishkan Bamidbor, that the Jews would build a Mishkan in the desert. So when Yaakov is going down to Egypt, and he brought cedar wood down to Egypt, Unatom, and he planted them in Egypt. And he commanded his children to take them with them when they would leave Egypt. Okay, so we have two ways of asking the question. And what is the obvious question that you would like to ask at this point? Well, who was for, Rashi was earlier than these other commentators? Or? Uh, well... It, it's not Rashi's just quoting a medrash that all the other rabbis were well aware of. So why why would they make up um, this, they this forest? Why make a, a forest if Rashi's answer yeah. they brought it with them um, suffices? Okay, well that's one question one could ask. Any well, other the question that I was looking? No, for. Uh, no, it's a, it's How a about fair. Time where they were even digging it down on these trees. It's a lot. It's a big job. Yes, how did they... Now you're asking some technical questions, which are fair questions to ask. The truth is that Ibn Ezra even asked a stronger question. He says, when the Jews left Egypt the first time, what did they tell everybody? They're going for... Three days. Three days. So now, how big were these trees? Well, well, no. no. The, the, the actual wood they needed for the Mishkan needs to be between... 15 and 20 feet. That's still big. Okay? So, Paro, they're going to ask, Wait, I understand you need animals to go to the desert. I understand you want to take some nice vessels. But what do you need 20-foot poles for? This all went through and the hundreds sea. of them. And all went through the sea as well. Yeah, and like all this schlep over here seems unusual. And you don't need that answer if you can just say there's a forest next to the... Outside. <laughs> Yes. Now, what really is the difficulty, Rashi has a rule, and he has stated it once in the Torah. He says, I give you the most pashat pshat. I give you the most, the simplistic interpretation. The one that is the simplest to understand. So if I would ask you, where did they have wood in the desert? What's the simplest understanding? The forest next to Mount Sinai. Or people selling. There can be people. Right, and they had lots of jewels. 
traveling around and selling things. They had lots of wealth to sell. Right. To buy it. And so what what forces Rashi to do that? Mm-hmm. Okay, that is the first question. Second question is when we go a little further in the parsha, well, what did they do with these trees? So in source number six, when it talks about making the planks, the walls for the Mishkan, it says right on source six there, Vasi says Hakrashim La Mishkan, Shitimomdi. You will make the uh, boards, the planks for the Mishkan, Shitim, Acacia wood. Upright. That's what the acacia wood's gonna be for. So if you flip your page. There's a Rashi over there as well. Now, what's bothering Rashi? I, sh- I told you a little too soon to flip the page. I'm sorry. What, what's, what's bothering Rashi in source number six? It should have said, Vasisa S. Krushim La Mishkan. You make planks for the Mishkan. You don't say, Ha! Krushim. The planks. You just say, Make planks. What's the the? So therefore, when you flip the page now, Rashi says, they ask this question, and he says, well, it's talking about the boards that already existed as being designated for the purpose. For our father Yaakov had planted trees in Egypt. And when he died, it's a spelling error, he bade his sons carry them up with them when they would leave Egypt. He told them that God would once command them in building the Mishkan with the sheeting trees. So therefore, they they already had to be in their possession. Now, what is Rashi leaving out in this Rashi that he said more in Source 5? And I kind of made it easy. I colored things. In the first Rashi, it says... That Yaakov saw it's going to happen, and he brought the trees to Mitzrayim. It doesn't say it in source seven. It just say he planted. So why is he omitting it, uh, or, or why did he say it the first time, and why isn't he saying Are you it the saying second? He brought them from Israel. When oh yeah. Yaakov came down. Yeah, that was the first Rashi. Right. It said he brought them from Israel, but here he's talking about the same crushim. It's just that he planted, but the Rashi before says he brought any planted. So it's a little bit of a technical question. If you have a good answer, then it's, it's worthwhile to ask the question. I guess it's important that they came from Israel as opposed to just Egyptian wood. Well, yeah, well, that, that obviously is something. But why didn't Rashi mention it the other time? Right. Okay. But so, but the, so the real question is, why is Rashi saying this when he's supposed to be the one who gives us the simple meaning of the text? And this doesn't seem to be so simple. So, so the Rebbe gives a profound answer. If you go back to source number one, source number one says, V'yikhuli truma, and take for me truma. And the famous question that is asked is, why does it say V'yikhuli? It should say V'yitnuli. They should give me. Not take for me, but give me. So there, so the so Rashi and others comment. So what does it mean? You give to me. You give to me something that is already only requires giving. 
which means you already have it. In other words, or as Rashi explains the word truma, the word truma we would think means a gift, but truma means something that's separated. So the simple meaning of the text is says, take, meaning take from what you already have. So if, if it's taking something that you already have, you have to already have it. So if, if you're going to wait for someone to sell it to you, you don't have it yet. But if you brought it down from Egypt, now you have it already. So it could be Yaakov already knew, already with prophecy they would need it, so he'd probably know that, you know, exactly what they would have to bring. They'd have to bring from something that they presently have. How are they presently going to have it unless they don't have it in Egypt? And therefore, that's where you're going to say, Rashi's going to say, well, I have to be true to the simple reading of the text. And the simple reading of the text is saying, take from that which you have. So take from that from which you have. Well, what do we have? We only have if we brought them down with us. So that could answer Rashi's force to explain this. But this really just begs the question. So let's give the following um, imaginary situation. Let's say there's a fellow, his name is Jacob Isaacson, which means son of Isaac, right? Mm -hmm. He's relocating from Russia to the United States in 1810. Okay? And he brings with him cedar saplings to plant in America. He tells his children that one day in the year 2023, they might leave America to build a sanctuary in the desert and they'll need cedar wood. Okay, what would you say to Grandpa? Grandpa, we could buy cedar wood in America. Right? So, so that's the same thing. It's like, so, remember, Yaakov, he's supposed to relocate. He has to go down to Mitzrayim. He's 130 years old. And he's relocating his whole entire life, his family, his livestock, his enormous wealth. He had a lot of things to take. The last thing he would need is cedar trees. Right? So, and we're going to say, well, he knows we're going to need it. But, but why? I mean, can't he plant cedar trees in Egypt? And it is really a big schlep. So why was all this necessary to have everything so well taken care of in advance? And That's that, why I was wondering, Rabbi, whether they have to come from Eretz Yisrael. Yes. So this is what we have to discuss. And really, if you think about it, it must have been a great pain in the neck. Mm. Right? Imagine for 210 years, they're nurturing these trees, okay? And then finally, when it's time to go down to Egypt, you're right, they got to chop down the trees. And you can't just take a tree. You've got to trim it so it's carryable. I don't even know how they physically were able to do that. They weren't given a lot of heads up when they were exactly leaving. This is a very technical question that I don't really, unless say it was a miracle. Yeah, what did you want to say? So just to charge with what Paul's saying, just the idea of that preparation in advance, that, you know, we're not going down forever, this is something holy coming from Eretz Yisrael, um, we're preparing already for our return, 
I, I feel like maybe that can be part of why it was necessary to have that whole sequence of bringing it and caring for it and then returning it and making something holy from it. Okay, good, good. So we will elaborate on this point. You, you, you gave a good answer there. Okay, so let's elaborate on this point. Let's elaborate on this point and let's go to a different part of the Torah for a minute and analyze another story. And that takes us to source number eight. It's still a little early for Pesach. Nobody wants to think about Pesach <laughs> just yet, although I think all the stores already have turned. I saw my first box of Shmurah Matzah in the store in Southeast. Already. It's coming. Okay. Next to the firm stuff. So, anyway, so there's uh, two paragraphs that are very famous. And let's start over here, source eight. Masa, there's a story for Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Lozer ben Azariah, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Tarfin, Shemesabim b'vnei brak. Mesubim b'vnei brak. Five rabbis are reclining in b'nei brak. V'yemesabrim b'yetzias mitzrayim. And they were relating the story of the Exodus from Egypt. Kol oso halayla, all that night. At Shabbat, Hamidayim, Ramelham, Rabbosenu, Higiyas, Man, Kriyash, Marshal, Shachos. Until the students came and said, Rebbe's, the time has already come to say the daytime Kriyashma. Okay. Statement number one. Okay. First question is, who went to who? There's five people. How did this exactly get together? So I'm going to spare you all the technical details. But it was Rabbi Akiva who lived in B'nai Brak. So they all went to Rabbi Akiva to have the Seder by Rabbi Akiva. Okay, I'll just, you just take that as a given. Okay. So, and then the next paragraph says, Amar Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah. Comes on Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah. And he says, behold, I am like 70 years old. Okay. And I have not merited that the exodus should be related at night until Benzoma came and gave it drusha for that. And he goes into that rest of the thing. Mm-hmm. Now, why was Rabbi Lester says, I'm like 70 years old? You all know the famous answer. Because he was appointed to be the, the head, the Nasi, the head of the, the, Bez, the Sanhedrin over there. And he was only 18 years old and he didn't think people would respect him. So he got, made his beard white and now he's like 18 years old. Okay, so the question is, what, what's the connection of story number one to story number two? The follow one follows the other. Doesn't seem to have any progression except the fact that it is Rebeliezer. Okay, so that's one interesting thing. But what's more interesting, let's go to the source number nine. And here's where the problem is. See, source number ton of Rabbon. Masav Rebeloi, story Rebeloi. He went on Yontif to visit his Rebbe, Rabbi Eliezer, who lived in Lod. So you see, clearly Rabbi Eliezer did not live in Bnei Brak. Okay, now there is a mitzvah to visit one's rabbi on Yontif. Kabbalah's Bnei Brak. So what did the rabbi tell him? Amr lo Eloi! You're not from the people who rest on the holiday. What does that mean? 
Because Rebel Yezer said, I praise the lazy ones. He doesn't mean that. That don't leave their house on the holiday because it says you shall rejoice you and your family. In other words, what does Rebel Yezer feel? He feels the Torah says you're supposed to rejoice on the holidays, you and your family. So a man should stay home with his family and not leave. And so to speak, be lazy. Don't go. Be lazy. And therefore he said, the student looks like you're not fulfilling this command. So asks the, the, the Reb Yechiel Michal Epstein, the author of the, the Sefer, his commentary on the Haggadah, he says, well, now we have a problem. Reb Liezer praised people who wouldn't leave home yeah, for Yantif. But he went to go to Rabbi Akiva. Yeah. And more than this, Rabbi Akiva wasn't even his Rebbe. So how do we understand this, this difficulty? Okay, so this this is a problem. You said this. Well, did he have a family at that time? Or he was oh yeah, king? oh yeah, oh yeah. So and, he, and or just not to leave, you should. But he definitely had. So it seems a contradiction. Hmm. So to answer all these things, there's one more little question we have to ask, and we go back to the Rashi way back on source number five. There's one other thing that's unusual about this Rashi. It says, Perish Rabbi Tanchuma. Is that bolded that? Yeah. Rashi usually does not write his sources. Usually does not write his sources. And even if he does, he won't use so many words. Or he'll say, you know, I found in the Tanchuma. But to, remember, every word is precious to Rashi. Every single word. So, for him to say Perish Rabbi Tanchuma is quite unusual. Why would he have to mention the source over here? Which is unusual if you look at Rashi. So, so let's, let's uh, take Andrea's idea and let's expand on that idea and explain a number of things over here. Let's, but let's first start with the story with Rabbi Akiva and his friends. Rabbi Akiva and his friends, also, if you notice carefully, the Gemara over there, in source, in the Haggadah, rather, it says that the five of them, they were speaking about the Yitzhak Mitzrayim, call also Halayla, all that night. Mm-hmm. And the question is, why did they say all that night? We know what we're talking. We're talking about the Seder. Yeah. It could have said call Halayla, the whole night. You see it in pink over there, the word on source eight? Call also Halayla. Why does it say also Halayla? Whatever night is it, it's Pesach night. So what's this also? So the uh, which Rebbe is this? Uh, the Klausenberger Rebbe. The Klausenberger Rebbe, we know, he lost his entire family in the Holocaust. Also's entire family Holocaust. And he says that every human being in his life has his Oso Halila that night. That night where you know life is uh, going along and earth changing moment. And he could very well speak about it. As the Holocaust was that night. Mm-hmm. And there are people who have uh, 
during the course of their lives. They have those nights. So he says that these five rabbis, what period of time were they living in? They were living, yes, they were living, right? These were Some of these rabbis even were alive when the Beis HaMikdash was. It's just after the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. It's during the Romans' terrible, terrible destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. And more than just the Beis HaMikdash, their desire to wipe out the Jewish people. And it, it was a very terrible time. And we also know that it was during the time of Bar Kokhba, and we, we can't say for sure exactly when this story took place, but the fact that their students had to tell them that it was time to say Kriya Shema in the morning, why would the students have to tell them that? Can't you tell that the light is outside? So if you've ever been to Israel with uh, Ira Rappaport, uh, I think he's retired now, his daughter now does the... Uh, my wife saw his daughter when they were in Shiloh doing uh, the... Anyway, so it, uh, so we were fortunate on one of the uh, trips we took with him. He took us to what's quote unquote the Rabbi Akiva caves, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it, it's it's outside of Yerushalayim, and you and you drive by, you wouldn't even know what's there. You just see there's boulders, but he takes you there, and you see there's like a little there's a big boulder, and there's a little space, but yay high from the ground. Okay, he says, okay, who wants to go in? He said, how are you going to go in? He says, I'll show you. Okay, so he goes on his back. And yeah, the only way you can go in is on your back. And you go back on your back, backwards into this little, little, if, if, you, if you're claustrophobic, you would not want to do this. And, and, he, and he told us, make sure you have dirty clothes. And you go all the way, and you just shimmy backwards like this, and then you go a little bit like I this. I worry about getting out as well. And then you get there, and then you get to a little, a little gets a little wider, and then you come, and then there's a big hole, and it's dark, and there's a ladder, and it's pitch dark, and there's a cave there, and he says he can't verify this for a fact. But when the Jews were trying to hide from the Romans, this is the kind of place they would be in. It's pitchback, and no one would think you'd go there. And you know, you put a few leaves in front of that hole. And he said it could very well be that this is where Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues were conducting the Seder. And obviously, they had students outside uh, watching if the coast was clear. And the students would have to say, Rebbe, it's time for the morning Krishma. Because how would you know? It's pitch dark. You have to have candles in there. You have no idea if it's day or night over there. So they were living in very tumultuous times. And the times were very sad. And they were, it was very hard for them to appreciate the fact that they're, what is there to, se- to celebrate? And therefore, as we know the famous story at the end of uh, Meseches Machas, Rabbi Akiva was walking with his friends and they uh, saw foxes jumping out of the holiest of holies. And they all were crying and Rabbi Akiva was laughing. And they asked him, why are you laughing? He said, why are you crying? And they said, listen, a place where, fo- where no one could go there unless they would die and foxes are jumping out, should we not cry? And Rabbi Akiva said, that's precisely why I'm laughing. Because... 
I knew when there was there were two prophecies. One prophet gave a prophecy of destruction, and one prophecy gave a prophecy of the uh, rebuilding of the temple. And another prophet said that the two prophecies are connected one to each other. So as long as the prophecy of the destruction that Yerushalayim will be plowed over until that didn't come true. I didn't know if the second one would come true. Now that I see that Jerusalem is plowed over and fox are coming out, then I know the second one is going to come for sure as well. So what do you see about Rabbi Akiva? Rabbi Akiva was the person who could always see the good in everything. And whatever situation you're in, as he would always say, everything Hashem does is for the best. So, you know, it's interesting. The Hebrew word for a uh, breakdown is mashber, the word shaber. So if you have a breakdown, something breaks, either you break down or the car breaks down, whatever, life breaks down is a mashber. But mashber is also, what? The birthing stool. It's where the woman gives birth, where she, so to speak, breaks open. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or, well, it also breaks down a little bit, but breaks open. <laughs> so how could the same word be two opposites? The answer is, no, that's exactly the point. That quite often, only when you break down, can you give birth to a new reality. I, I cannot discuss what the pains of childbirth are. I can only say what my wife says. And I can have no real sense of what it is. But obviously, what do you see? That only after a person is mamish broken can they give birth to something that they couldn't give birth to either way. We're talking about a seed decomposing as well. Well, seed decomposing, same thing. So, in other words, for growth to happen, there has to be a tremendous amount of suffering, of uncomfortableness. And this is critical for amazing things to happen. And this was Rabbi Akiva's hallmark. He understood that. And so many stories were all about Rabbi Akiva. So in spite of the fact that Rabbi Eliezer said that you shouldn't leave your home for Yontif. But on the other hand, he says, but you know what? Sometimes you just have to. Because I don't know how I can even make my family happy and rejoice with them when I see how terrible things are going over here. And therefore, I have to go to Rabbi Akiva because Rabbi Akiva is the one who can bring out the best of every terrible situation. So that's why they all went to Bnei Brak so they can go with Rabbi Akiva. Now, with that, we can connect the next idea. So once that story happened, so what's the next story that I have got? I'm Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah. He says, I'm like 18 years old. And I could not merit to, to bring a proof that we say the Yitzhiyasi Shrayim at night. Now, what's the connection? Well, what's the difference between saying Yitzhiyasi Shrayim in the mo- day or at night? Well, the simple meaning is you say it once in the day, once at night. But the deeper meaning is how can we mention Yitzhiyasi Shrayim when we're suffering such terrible night, which means disaster. Night is associated with disasters. How, how can you ever talk about Yitzhiya Svitzrayim at night? It, it's a terrible situation. What, what is to, to be happy about when you're suffering? And this was specifically going on now with the Romans. So okay, so he found the drusher, he found a drusher, but the whole idea seemed so foreign to him. 
How could it be that you say this in a nighttime of also Halayla? And Rabbi Akiva was able to show him that it is something that can very well happen. So that's the story over there. So now we bring this back into the story over here with Yaakov and the Jewish people. Certainly the Jewish people were going through the worst of situations in Egypt. It was definitely as bad, you can debate which was worse, being in the Romans destroying the temple or power and all these things. But Yaakov saw that in all the bad, we are going to eventually get out of Egypt and we are going to build a Mishkan. Okay, now... Clearly, there could be many ways for Jews to get cedar trees. That's not a problem. Now, who is the author of the statement? So Rashi says, Perish Rabbi Tanchuma. Now, what does the word Tanchuma mean? Nichum is comfort. Rabbi Tanchuma, his name suggests comfort. So it's the rabbi of comfort. So that's why Rashi is mentioning Rabbi Tanhuma's name because this whole commentary is based on the idea of comfort. And that's what Rashi is, is using over here. And when he's saying he brought cedar trees from Egypt and the question is what is it uh, to Egypt? And he brought them from Israel. So the question is who really cares where he brought it from? And in the second Rashi, when Rashi is telling us what the cedar, the acacia wood was used for, was to make the boards, he only said that Yaakov planted them in Egypt. He didn't mention bringing them from Egypt. But in the first Rashi, when he talks about the acacia trees, he said he brought from Israel. So why is he mentioning that? Because this is the whole point, as Andrea said exactly. What Yaakov was saying, and Yaakov himself was afraid to go down to Egypt. And Hashem had to promise him, don't worry, I'll bring you up, I'll bring you up. So Yaakov said, I have to do something to show my children how positively certain that this is going to happen. And that the fact that we're going to Egypt is not just a terrible situation that we hope to be saved from, but it's as if it is saying it is something that we must live through. Because if you're bringing the, the wood for the Mishkan that is going to be used for the Jews to travel to Israel and to go through all that effort going down to Egypt knowing that there's going to be suffering then that was crystal clear that as they planted those trees and they're saying Zadie why are you planting these trees we're in Egypt he says because we're not going to be here forever we're going to go back to Eretz Yisrael and we're going to need these trees and we're going to need them in the desert and we go through the desert and if you see such a confidence in Yaakov doing that, and every year they're planting and nurturing and nurturing this tree and watching this tree, and now terrible things are happening to them, but still they're saying, but you know what? But the Zaydi knew this was going to happen. He knew this was going to happen, and he still said we should plant this. So therefore, that gave them the strength to continue on because they knew Yaakov was a smart man. And to bring it Badafka from Eretz Yisrael, again, as you said, Andrea, it's, it's to know that's where we belong, that's where we're gonna come back. And 
this being in Egypt is part of the process of us getting back to Eretz Yisroel. And that's what it says, Rabbi Tanchuma. This is all a comfort to the Jewish people. And now that they're in the desert, this is where we have them from. So now we understand why they had to bother with this. And there must have been incredible miracles that happened at this time. So this is a wonderful interpretation. Now the question now becomes, what's the message for us? And why are we mixing in Rabbi Akiva over here? So if you look at the next source, number 10, it says in Tehillim, Tzadik Katomar Yifrach, the Tzadik blooms like a date palm. Ke'erez Bavanon Yishke. Like the cedar in Lebanon, he thrives. Okay. So a tzaddik is like this. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now we have to understand um, when we talk about a leader, what's the role? Well, what's the role of a tzaddik? A tzaddik is supposed to be like a date palm. Supposed to thrive like a cedar in Lebanon, to be like these acacia trees. Now, very interesting. So, what does that mean every leader needs to do? So, if you look in source number 11, a leader of the Jewish people is called a Nasi. Nasi, why is he called Nasi? Nasi literally means to lift up. It's the job of the Nasi is to lift up the spirits of the Jewish people. That's his job amongst all the other jobs. But the Jewish people have gone through a very storied history of lots of challenges. So the main job of a Jewish leader, and a Jewish leader can be a parent, can be anyone who can affect another person, is to lift up people. And if you look, and I put in source 11, the word Nasi is an acronym for Nitzotzo Shel Yaakov Avinu. The Nun for Nitzotz means a spark. Sin is shell of, Yud is Yaakov, Aleph Avinu. To be a spark of Yaakov our father. So therefore, Yaakov, who plants that tree with, that alludes to what he is and what message he gave, and Yaakov is able to uplift the people in his lifetime and beyond his lifetime, this now becomes the job of every Nasi. And specifically, who would be fitting into this very well would be Rabbi Akiva. As the Arizal says, that Rabbi Akiva was a Gilgal of Yaakov Avinu. Now, how do we know that? What's the hints to this? Well, first of all, look at the name. Akiva is the same letters as Yaakov with an olive for Avinu. It's the exact same letters, just rearranged. Yaakov, Aleph, Yaakov, Avinu. Number one. They both had wives whose names were Rachel. They both were shepherds. Yaakov had to be 22 years away, had to have Yosef 22 years away from him to atone for the fact he was 22 years away from his father. And Rabbi Akiva had to be by his Rebbe, Nochum Ish Gamzu, for 22 years. So you see now that Rabbi Akiva, as being a Gilgal of, of Yaakov, so what is the job of being a Nasi? Is to lift everyone's spirits. And therefore Yaakov is lifting our spirits 
by telling us to plant these trees. Rabbi Akiva lifted up their spirits, and that's the job of every leader, is to uplift everybody's spirits. So now let's take it another step. So let's understand the whole idea of what's going on in these parshios now. These parshios, we're talking a lot about the Mishkan. And there's an obvious question seems much ado about very little. Why? The Mishkan was a temporary structure. It was a temporary structure. It was only meant really to last a very short amount of time. Uh, after they got the Torah, and it would be for their wanderings in the desert. And, they, and if things would not have gone so bad, the base of Minish would have been built very quickly. Okay, so it was. But either way, the grand plan was the Mishkan should not be forever. It was never meant to be forever. It was always meant that there should be a base Hamikdash. And the base Hamikdash was quite different than the Mishkan in many ways. And the most obvious way is that the base Hamikdash is in Yerushalayim the center of the universe, and this was to be a permanent structure forever and ever in the Holy Land. Yet the Torah spends five parshios discussing the Mishkan, which is only a temporary, was only a temporary thing. Why is the Torah spending so much time on this? Many of the mitzvahs of the Mishkan weren't even permanent mitzvahs. Some were as they get put into the Beis Hamikdash as well. But generally they're not. So, so what's going on? And what's this whole idea of us having to go through the desert? So the, the commentaries tell us that the wanderings of the Jews in the desert is a metaphor for the Jewish exile in the desert of the nations. And this is something that we know, have no control of how long that's going to be or any knowledge. I mean, we have certain control, but... This is part of what life is. Now, it w was starting off as a small trip, turned out to be a long trip. But what was the ultimate purpose of this journey? What was the purpose of us when we're journeying? For whatever time we were journeying, no matter what, we're journeying from Egypt into Israel was to build this Mishkan in the desert. Now, what do we know about the desert? Would we call that like a very spiritual place? We only have bad ideas of a desert. We talk about klipos, shells. The desert's the domain of snakes and serpents and scorpions. And it's just all death. There's no holiness over there. And what does Hashem want us to do? He wants us to make a dwelling and a sanctuary for Hashem in the lowest realm. It doesn't get any lower than the desert. And Hashem wants us to build a Mishkan there. And when that is finished, then what will we... And then we have to still, no matter how long that journey is, in this place that's devoid of holiness, we have to have this itinerant, holy place that we're all focused on. And surrounded by unholiness, we are totally focused on holiness. Now, 
What does that mean? That means we, as we go through this journey, have to overcome this darkness of the exile when things are looking very bad. And how are we doing this? The primary object were, what was the primary object of the Mishkan? Were those trees. The whole structure of the walls and everything was those trees. And that all came from Yaakov. And therefore we have, and therefore we have this, this the, the Nesim, we have mentioning the 12 Nesim, it's the, the 12 uh, heads of each tribe. And the ones in Shevet Levi who would carry the Mishkan and all those other things. So now our job is to travel through that place of the lowest level and to infuse it with Kedusha. And if we successfully go through that journey, then what's the next step? So therefore, this Mishkan, although it was temporary, but if you think about it, in the grand scale of things, isn't life temporary? <laughs> and Hashem says, you build a Mishkan and I'll dwell in you. So it wasn't just by coincidence. Hashem has us journeying in the most difficult places and from there is going to be the greatest holiness. And who are the ones that are going to keep us to go through that? It's the Nesim, the Nasi. And that we says is Nitzotso Shal Yaakov Avinu, the ones who have the spark of Yaakov, the patriarch. Okay? And really some, the, the, one of the uh, Hasidic Rebbe says that the soul of Yaakov really had all the Jews' souls from all times. So now when Rashi is telling us that Yaakov brought the cedar trees to Egypt, and now all the Nesim, all the leaders now, they are the sparks of the patriarch of Yaakov. So therefore, what do we see? That all this has a history. All the way back in Eretz Yisrael, when everything was good, and we're going down to Egypt, they were still, we took those holy trees and we planted them in Egypt in the era of the exile so we could overcome that darkness. And now that becomes the comfort that they have as now we continue going through the desert. And we're going through the desert of life and we have to look for those aspects that uh, raise us up and lift us up to be people who can take on those challenges. And this really is what's so special about the Mishkan and why we spend so much time talking about it. Because it said Hashem wanted to have a dira batachtonim. He wanted to have a domicile in the lowest places possible. And by bringing this Mishkan, he's able to bring that reality and Kedusha in a place that doesn't really have any inherent Kedusha, but the Jewish people are infused with that Kedusha by being with that. And it all started from Yaakov. And therefore, what the real message of the Mishkan is, is to tell us, and this whole storyline is telling us that for growth to happen, it has to come through challenges. And if you're not having any challenges, there isn't going to be any growth. And the greatest growth Hashem wants to see is when we're in the greatest challenges. And therefore, just like Yaakov, who his whole life was full of challenges. His whole life was from beginning to end was that of challenge. And now he has to bring his children down to Egypt. And they have to continue the legacy of Yaakov. So he says, listen, these trees are going to remind you of that legacy 
and you will chop them down, you will take them out, you will go into the desert, and in the desert you're going to be able to look at a world that's got no Yiddishkeit and bring those trees and create this Mishkan and to create Kedush in this place, and you'll do it long enough until when? Until it's time to go to Eretz Yisrael, and then we'll have that permanent structure for that as well. And that is why Rashi has so, and that's why Hashem Bedavka was much easier to buy the wood when they're in the desert. But you know what the problem is? There'll be nobody to buy them in the desert. There'll be no Jews in the desert. They had to have Jews who were working on this wood and working and working and working. And that was really increasing their belief that it's got to be that we're, we're going to get out of here. And from all the terrible things, it's going to be good things. And that's why Rabbi Akiva was so thrilled when he saw the prophecy of Eretz Yisrael being plowed up. He said the fact being plowed up is the biggest proof that it's going to be amazing because when do you plow? You only plow if you plan on planting afterwards. So Rabbi Akiva could always see the good that has to come in every situation. And he was the spark from Yaakov, and Yaakov saw that. And that is the whole message of the, the Mishkan. Now you understand why we talk about the Mishkan in which month? Ador. Why, why are we talking about the Mishkan in Ador? Well, there's many things. Number one, Ador is spelled Aleph, Dalid, Resh. So what does that mean? What does door mean? Door means to dwell. To dwell. Adira. Door. Aleph is Hashem. Ador. Hashem dwells with us. So the whole Mishkan was have a place where Hashem dwells with us. We have to build a Mishkan so that Hashem will dwell with us. And the month of Ador is the month where we want to re... Um, uh, re uh, re-emphasize this idea as we now go into Nisan which is coming up and that's why the whole idea of uh, Ador is the whole idea of Vinahapahu everything turned upside down in which month does everything turn upside down it's in Ador, the whole Purim story so think about this so where does Hashem dwell? Ador, where does Hashem dwell? He must dwell in amazing places. No, no, no. He dwells in the desert. He dwells where nobody would think God dwells. He's Badafka in those places. So where where will he dwell in the in the Purim story where it doesn't look like Hashem's at all in the story? This was the most lowest time of the Jewish people. Now, the Rabbi Akiva and the second temple, that was the lowest time in that generation. What was the lowest time before that? It was after the destruction of the first place of Megdush. And especially at the Purim story. Why at the Purim story especially? Because we know that the party that Achashverosh made, what was the reason for the party? What was the reason for the party? To celebrate what? That the Mashiach hadn't come. So can you get to a lower point for the Jewish people? And at that point, you figure it's all over. And on top of that, the Jews didn't even listen to Mordechai. So they got even lower. And then, but from that lowest place where things couldn't have been worse, but that's where Hashem Bedavka dwells. And then all of a sudden, the whole thing gets flipped over where you would least expect Kedusha 
That's where you're going to find the Kedusha. Why? For those who hold on. And just like you had a Yaakov who was able to be the Nasi and to lift everyone up, just like Rabbi Akiva was the one that could lift everyone up, so Mordechai was the one that would lift everyone up and be able to show that, no, 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 this is all part of the redemption. Now think about this. If someone would have told you, because of this Achashverosh, we will now be able to rebuild the temple, they think you're crazy. And Hashem says, Bedavka, with that Shmo, I'm going to have him be the father of the king who's going to let the Jewish people come back. So now, why is that happening? Because you have someone who's lifting everybody up. That's what's critical. That's what Yaakov's doing. So now in this generation, the key to everything is that we all have to be a Nasi. We have to lift everybody up. We're living in a time where everybody's getting pushed down, pushed down, pushed down. It looks so terrible. It doesn't look like the Jewish people have any hope. And then you have to have people who, who encourage us and to say, no, that Bedavka, it, it, it is so much a better opportunity for us. You can imagine the tests that we have to go through today, no Jews ever went through these tests. The tests and the so much lack of Kedusha that happened. So then, so then what do we have to rely on? It's these parshios. So where are our trees? Where are the trees? The trees are these parshios. We're learning these parshios. And these parshios are showing us this is precisely what Hashem is expecting. Now, wouldn't, wouldn't you say that the goals we're now is, is just as bad as the desert that they went through? So then where do we have to go? We have to go to our mishkan. What's our mishkan? It's our shuls, our schools. And these places that are keeping us going in the most difficult times, being old, but always able to see the positive aspect of it, and in that way, you will be able to get through and to bring Mashiach. Okay, sorry, the class went a little shorter than anticipated. Sometimes, but if I've got any questions, well, those three rabbis at the beginning that disagreed with Rashi and said that the forest was in the desert, why would they come and say that? Okay, so that's, so that's an interesting question because obviously there's many interpretations. And there is a medrash. Medrash Sanchuma is a medrash. So the question is, so which, which, class is so beautiful. which one is fitting better into the realities? In other words, which one fits better into the text? Right? Now, it, it could very well be that with this machlokas you have like different solutions to problems. And maybe what the, you know, in other words, listen, only one thing really happened. Right? right? So why, in many cases, why do we are told more than one thing if only one thing really happened? And who knows what the one thing really was? But the answer is, but in the future, there could always be more than one thing. Right. <laughs> can, can't there be more than one option? So the other commentators say, well, yeah, there's other options. They could have just bought it when they needed it. And why wouldn't you want to say such an interpretation? It's so much easier to say such an interpretation. So it could very well be, as, as, as these stories are supposed to tell us a sign for the future. So aren't the Jews going through the same suffering in Egypt? And don't we need certain reminders? And when Mashiach comes, what are we going to do when Mashiach comes? Well, okay, when the time comes, we'll buy what we need. We'll buy what we need. And some have that attitude, we'll buy what we need. 
But Rashi's telling you that make make more sense, but at the end of the day, you have to do the more difficult one. So they're all saying, well, we could say this, we could say that. So why, why are they all bringing that? To just show you how difficult Rashi's pshat is, but sometimes to maybe highlight that the difficult pshat is the pshat that you have to do. So therefore, a lot of times in life, when you have to, there's an easy way to deal with the issue or a hard way to deal with the issue. So what do you see? The, the way to deal with the issue is what's the thing that's going to motivate us more? And sometimes motivating people is much harder <laughs> yeah. to keep them. And how to, how to motivate? They got to do all this work. They got to tend to the tree. They got to tend to all this and take care of it. And then they got to chop it down. They got to do that. But at the same time, they're keeping that connection to Eretz Yisrael. So you could say like this. Some people say, listen, why should I go to Eretz Yisrael? Well, wait till Mashiach comes. I'll go to Eretz Yisrael. The truth is, it's a schlep to go to Eretz Yisrael. As my wife will attest. It's a, it's a long trip. You go to Eretz Yisrael, you don't exactly, it's not the easiest place to uh, visit. And it's not easy. It's not easy. And you have dangerous things going on there. But the truth is, how are you going to eventually get back to Eretz Yisrael if you're not connecting to Eretz Yisrael? If you're not trying to have your kids live in Eretz Yisrael or you buy a house in Eretz Yisrael, you do something but, but isn't that more expensive? Isn't that a bigger hassle? Is it a schlep to tend to the tree? Let's just wait till Mashiach comes. When Mashiach comes, the houses will be there. Why do they, they keep visiting you? The answer is, it's the same schlep they did to bring the trees with them, and that guaranteed that they came back. So that's going to guarantee that we come back as well. So it takes a lot of effort. All these things, paying school tuitions, all these things is a hard thing. It's a hard way to do it. But at the end of the day, that is what keeps us connected to the to that overall history. Okay, Shkoyak, everybody, thank you. Sorry it ended a bit early, but...